and welcome to another Conservative History Podcast. This one entitled, Star Trek, Race, and Risk. The date is June 2020. Is one a Trekkie? I've been a devotee of the show, well, really all of the shows, for the better part of 40 years. Yet I've never donned a Starfleet uniform, nor sported pointy ears. I have not attended a conference to hear William Shatner or Patrick Stewart reminisce for a nice fat fee. But my admiration for the show and many of its unique aspects continues to this day. It is not easy to understand in 2020 the truly radical nature of the original Star Trek. The obvious reference, especially in these race-obsessed times, was the character of Uhura, who was unique. Played by an African-American woman, she was the communications officer, a lieutenant. Although it did not explicitly happen, said officer, Uhura, could have given commands to the white male crewman. This was unheard of stuff on TV in 1967, and it was nearly impossible in the real world. Yet, in 1967, was just two years removed from the Civil Rights Act, and MLK, the Nation of Islam, and the Black Panthers all were all prominently active during that time. So making a political statement about blacks was radical, but maybe not entirely unexpected. More startling was that the navigator was a Russian at the height of the Cold War. The helmsman was Japanese, just 22 years removed from being an American enemy. 1967 was just a uh, a few years removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis and Khrushchev's quote about burying the Americans. So again, think about that helmsman. This was the same year that the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, featuring a biracial couple, was shown in movie theaters. There were many Americans who would have been okay with Sidney Poitier on the bridge of the Enterprise, but it would have been difficult to find one willing to have a, quote, Ruski, unquote, aboard. Having an entire cast made up of such folks was risky. Of course, the progressivism of the time had its limits. The men wore uniforms. The women wore something that would be almost risque in a nightclub. The top five officers were all men, or sort of. Was Spock, the number two on the Enterprise, a man? And there were various alien women, almost all conquests of Captain Kirk. Again, dressing in various forms of revealing garb. Were these alien females trying to take over the galaxy on their way to a pole dancing class? The fact that the latest installment in the franchise, Star Trek Discovery, features a very solid actress who represents the second time Star Trek featured a female lead, and this one, who is also African-American, is Progress. It also is the first gay couple aboard a starship. Also, what was impressive on the original show was the implicit nature of the diversity. On Discovery, everything is spelled out. At one point, another character even notes that when a female hits on one member of the gay couple, a crewman points out, quote, you know he is gay, unquote. Chekhov, the Russian on the original Star Trek, does refer to his ancestry, even incorrectly claiming ownership of achievements for his people, well, that they didn't really achieve. But these were asides, almost for comic relief. In today's Star Trek, the dialogue would be like this, quote, you know, as a Russian, we were once enemies of the United States as a Russian. I am glad we are no longer enemies because it is better for Russia. 
unquote, scintillating dialogue. The original Star Trek world was essentially post-racial, and in Discovery, they do not comment on Commander Burnham's race. But that reflection on the goals of the 1960s views on race are really something in the past. If that were the case, thousands of professors, activists, journalists, and diversity experts would all be out of work if we were in that post-racial society. The views of MLK, the Black Panthers, and the Nation of Islam differentiated not just on the issues of militancy, but also that of diversity. MLK may have gotten the statues in the holidays, but today it's really Malcolm X who seems more of the ethos, at least in the year 2020. Here is one quote from Malcolm X. The white man is afraid of truth. I'm the only black man they've ever been close to who they know speaks the truth to them. It's their guilt that upsets them, not me, unquote. And here is another quote. Sitting at the table doesn't make you a diner unless you eat some of what's on that plate. Being here in America doesn't make you an American, unquote. Contrast that with some of the statements by MLK on integration, on sitting down and being at the table. And some of Malcolm X's refutations almost don't seem to be aimed at whites as much as certain aspects of the civil rights movement, including that championed by MLK. Interesting in how in the 1960s it was important that a diverse cast exist together as a team with one purpose, rather than continuously advertising their differences. There was enough challenge with space clouds, galaxy-sized germs, and Klingons to be worried about, rather than was Sulu being passed over for a promotion because he was Asian. In fact, in one of the later movies, Sulu is a captain of his own starship. So then, not only do they not explicitly talk about it, but things just seem to happen for the most capable officers, based on their character and intelligence. A critical difference between the 1960s and today's was that MLK's content of character was still paramount. Yes, Uhura was a black female, but it was never stated. Instead, she was noted for being a competent officer, and one with insights, as on one episode, she alone understands the references of a deity, not to be a, quote, sun, as in sun god, sun in the sky, but rather sun, as in son of God. In another episode, an alien threatens to slap her. Uhura sticks out her face as if to say, quote, go ahead, I am brave and I am tough enough for you, unquote. Discovery is somewhat behind the times. Modern Family, a very successful 11-year comedy that just recently ended its run in 2020, featured a loving, successful, and married gay couple over a decade ago. And all the way back into the 1980s, John Ritter faked being gay to be able to stay with his female roommates. It is only later in these times do we marvel that the homophobic Mr. Roper seemed far more concerned about the impropriety of a single straight man living with two single females than he was about having a gay man living in his rental apartment. Putting in diverse casts and featuring gay is now so common on TV that would it almost be surprising if you were to feature a drama and there were no gays. The inclusion of groundbreaking characters, including and groundbreaking events, including the famous first interracial kiss, which was actually forced on Kirk and Uhura by an alien, 
Probably the only way Roddenberry could get that by the censors was secondary to the plots. The original Star Trek was only tangentially about Spock, Kirk, and McCoy. Over the 80 episodes, we meet Spock's parents, but not Kirk's, McCoy's, or really any others. We do learn that Kirk's brother and his family are killed, but they aren't even done so on screen. In the Next Generation series, the characters became more part of the show, but still not the point. We only learn of Picard's brother in the third season, and only after the Borg had warped Picard's mind to such an extent that he sought out family for healing. And speaking of the Borg, this is one of those cases of viewers projecting their biases on the screen. I saw the Borg as a collective, proto-socialist organization. There are no rich, there is no income inequality with the Borg, but the cost is the subservience of the very individual identities of all the races assimilated. It is never explicitly stated, but the Borg is a commune, and Borg itself is communism writ universal. In the second season of Discovery, we get Commander Burnham's brother, her adopted mother, her biological mother, her adopted father, and even a love interest. Dealing with all of her angst and interpersonal emotions, it is a wonder she has time to get out and save the universe. And it does not end there. We have sons, couple breakups, couples reunite. It is as if, if protecting the galaxy is such a burden, not because galaxy saving is hard, but instead it's that distraction from the far more critical interpersonal relationships that need to be played out. On more than one occasion, the viewer is prone to yell, I do not care about your mommy issues. You have 45 seconds to save the universe and the universe does not care. A core value of conservatism is an individual belief system in the pursuit of that individual's needs. The challenge is this belief system does not exist in a vacuum, but rather in a social context. Let's say an individual need is a home by the lake. Lack of funds do not entail that I take my neighbor's lake home because, after all, I have needs. Hence, the rule of law and property rights and morality is captured in the Mosaic Code and the ability of somebody to take a risk, to take a different job, to make an investment, to start a company, to do all of those things that might earn me the money to get my lake by the home. In other words, I'm the one who took the risk I'm the one who gets the reward. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in this piece. These two are part of the conservative canon. The United States is unique in that no other nation in the history of humanity, even, yes, for African Americans, has provided the opportunities for meeting these needs. But not everyone can avail themselves of all of their desires, especially without risk. Today's left is not about individual, but rather group identity, primarily based on class, gender, and race. And thanks to the Supreme Court's recent Clayton v. Bostock decision, we can now add sexual orientation and identification to tribal allegiance. Yet what the left misses is the commonality of specific goals captured by the ethos in the Declaration of Independence. It was these very words that would 80 years later lead white northerners on a quest to end slavery, even at the cost of their lives. America is more than just groups of people identified by a marker. There is a commonality to our belief in freedom and the purpose of pursuing happiness. 
The original Star Trek was about different races working together to a common goal. Gene Roddenberry famously forbade serious dissension on the bridge, but it was really about exploration, taking risks, and discovery. The next generation built on the core mission, but added to the array of people's encounters by the Enterprise. In the original series, the Klingons were a sort of stock villains, but in the next generation, they became a sort of warrior caste more similar to Mongols. And of course, there is the Borg, arguably the best of all Star Trek villains, completes with not one, but two catchphrases. And if you know anything about Star Trek, I don't need to repeat them here. You already know what they are. And even in the ostensible liberal Star Trek Next Generation, which boasted so many female admirals superior to Picard that one may wonder whether Starfleet had evolved into some matriarchy. Yet in the Borg, one had the most beautiful space example of communism. Individuals are repressed to serve the collective. Everything is equitable, aside from the queen. Everybody has the same things, except for individual expression and freedom. Aside from the world building of a post-racial society, the item that really stands out about the original Star Trek in the America of today is the concept of security versus opportunity. The new series could not help themselves create a fundamental name change. Enterprise has an inherently capitalistic tone about it. And was it not for the success of the original show, the name would have been dropped long before 2017, when it was subordinated to the less ideologically generic discovery. The left likes to denigrate capitalism as exploitive, but the salient aspect of the system at its core is risk. When a, comp- when a citizen starts a company, hires an employee, or makes an investment, there is risk. The company could fail. The new hire could be incompetent. The investment may be lost. But alternatively, the company could be the next Ford Motor or Apple. The new hire hire may take the organization to the next level. The investment could double. All of these decisions are made by that citizen. They own the risk and they get the reward. This is is the ultimate uh, refutation to the concept of you didn't build that. What President Obama did not fundamentally understand about that is is the person who builds the factory gets the rewards, but the person who builds the factory also is the one undergoing the risk. The past 100 years of the Republic have been a steady march of greater governmental intrusion to minimize that risk. If you are over the age of 65, You don't need to save money. The government will give you money and pay for your medical bills. If you wish to go to college, the government will subsidize your loan. If you are out of work, the government will carry you. But the only way this is possible is as if we tax people, limiting their choices and limiting their ability to try something risky. And if you want to go rock climbing and fail, you will sue somebody, thus eliminating any future rock climbing. Same with that investment. If you're going to sue and that does not work out, why would anyone loan you the money to make the investment in the first place? Risk versus safety. There is also a moment in the next generation which Picard notes that they have grown beyond the acquisition of wealth. He tells one alien, we do not need money. 
And my comment is, really? So is he giving away his wine for free? The various crews on Star Trek know the risks. One cannot venture to the deep environs of space without significant courage. I recommend strongly another uh, media production, the 1983 uh, presentation of The Right Stuff. It's a great movie, not just about the initial space program and all of the characters therein, but the concept of the risk that these guys were taking. They weren't being space explorers. The way to get to space was is to basically strap themselves onto a massive explosion. And all astronauts know the risk. We need not go back to memories, sad, very sad memories of the Challenger and Columbia shuttle disasters. But every one of those astronauts who got on those, and even astronauts of today, understand that there is risk involved. But they also understand the reward. The reward of seeing something for the first time. The reward of discovering something beyond anything that anybody else had comprehended before. That's the view of exploration. But again, it doesn't come without risk. The point of the original Star Trek was to go where no man has gone before. In the opening montage of Star Trek Enterprise, there is a litany of previous explorers, Columbus notably missing, but in more recent iterations, the focus is on the characters and their needs, including a montage of pieces forming to complete Picard in the Star Trek Picard. The notion of that show isn't so much about space exploration, or discovering new peoples, those are secondary. The point of that show is Picard to become himself again. The real exploration is the exploration of self. Even the plotting of the show is more about Picard reacting to his past rather than exploring a new future. That is America today, obsessed with the past to the detriment of moving to a new and better future. But in the original Star Trek, the Great Society was only two years old. Today, the Federation could not build a Starfleet because revenues would need to be channeled towards McCoy and Picard's retirement, Scotty's MIT loans, and reparations for Aurora. The real difference between the 1960s and 2020s is not just the progress that African Americans had made during that time, but also what has been lost. Today, security, group identity, Safe spaces and microaggressions are the norm. Risk-taking and the kind of team attitude necessary to explore the stars could be long gone. Thank you. 